Welcome to David Cork's We Are Superman podcast number 116. I am your host, Bill Stahl, and today I'm talking with incredible, inspiring ultra runner Jason Romero. Jason won the 100-mile race in the American Heroes Run in Longmont, Colorado this past September in roughly 20 and a half hours. Oh yes, and Jason is severely sight-impaired. This was actually one of Jason's lesser achievements. Years ago, Jason found himself divorced, unemployed, and in a deep depression with a degenerative eye condition that has left him with limited light perception. Feeling a calling out of the blue to run across America, don't we all? (laughs) He dedicated the next two years of his life to prepare for and ultimately run more than 3,000 miles from California to New York in less than 60 days, averaging 51 and a half miles per day to log the seventh fastest transcontinental foot crossing ever. It was and remains the only transcontinental foot crossing by a blind person. He wrote about the run and his other struggles in his books, in his book, I should say, Running in the Dark. For more on his story, Jason was also on the We Are Superman podcast episode number 61 with David. Jason and I talk about struggling with adversity, learning not to give up or give in, to accept oneself for all that one is and is not. Jason has a new book coming out, The Success Cycle, and he started a nonprofit business called Inspire Connection, which provides motivational speaking opportunities. Okay, we're getting down to it. I'm already working on the project to write what I'm calling David's fourth book. Some of you have told me that you thought you have missed the deadline for submission, but that's not true yet. So how about jotting down your David Clark story and getting it to me by mid-March? If you're unsure about length, shoot for 200 to 500 words. Don't worry about the exact length. You'll probably get into the flow and write more before you know it. My contact info is in the show notes, silly underscore Billy at msn.com. I'm on Facebook and I'm on Instagram as at Stahlor, at S-T-A-H-L-O-R. And I can also do a phone interview with you if you prefer. And if you would like to eat better, feel better, fight for your sobriety, have a positive outlook on life, or achieve audacious goals like completing races from 5Ks to ultramarathons, then I'm inviting you to join the We Are Superman Leadville 10 Warriors. It is a running group based on Gandhi's 10 principles for changing the world. You will receive training plans. We have every other week group Zoom calls and a very supportive Facebook community. We also have a group trail race and retreat in Western Kentucky planned for this March. And we will be in Leadville in mid-June for the heavy half and marathon. Please shoot me a message for more info. Okay, please enjoy Jason Romero and me. Hey, Jason Romero, it's good to have you on the We Are Superman podcast in the Hive. How's it going today, man? Doing good, man. Thanks for having me, Bill. I really appreciate it. No, it's an honor. It's uh, I've known about you for a long time, but I don't think I really had much one-to-one interaction with you until you came out to the American Heroes Run back in September, and uh, you won the 100-mile race there. And just if you would, tell everybody, I just want to start with that. I know we got a lot of things we can cover here, but just tell me, what did that race mean to you? Yeah, that was a big race. It actually had been on my radar for quite a bit of time because of David Clark, uh, who started and was race director and you know, passed away recently. And uh, David, uh, I say, is a friend. And uh, I've wanted to run that race for a long time. 
but uh, with David's passing, it was even more special and just, uh, it's just, it, it was important. Plus his hometown hunter, you know, it was one of those things where <laughs> I loved it because it's perfectly David's style, even in the time of COVID and all these races shutting down and stuff like that. You know, you, you figure out a way to put it on, to have it done virtually, to have people be able to run, actually ran a hundred miles with a mask compliant with the local uh, Department of Health and Public Safety. And it still went on and it was just in David's spirit. And it was, you know, it was great. It was, I, I, uh, I wish uh, David could have been there with us live, but I know he was there in spirit. Oh, hell yeah. No, it was, uh, it was an undertaking, definitely dealing with Boulder County Health and <laughs> 11 days before the race, they gave us permission to do it, and uh, everybody had to wear a mask for 100 miles, and um, it seemed pretty onerous, but uh, people did it, you know? It, it was cool. It was cool to have that race out there, and of course, you know, we wanted to honor David. We wanted to keep up his patriotism without politics theme and everything that race meant to not only him, but everybody else out there. So it, it was very cool, and it was an honor to have you out there, and you were out there, um, so you know, you ran like the first three laps with a guide, correct? And yep. and then you kind of laid down some chalk marks and everything, which was just to keep you on course, right? Yeah. So I have this visual condition where I don't see so well. I see kind of like, I always liken it to like, if you took two toilet paper roll cartons and held them side by side and you look through that, that's like what I see, like a, a tunnel like that. So I scan around to, to see stuff and what ends up happening is during the daytime, usually I see in, in the my acuity through there is like 2,200, 2,400. So I don't see a lot of detail. I got to get real close to see something. But I do see contrast very well, meaning dark, light, and movement. And I've seen before in my life. So that's how I know how to put things together. You know, people are moving or shoes or bike paths or stuff like that. But a lot of times on different races like this, it's really hard to tell the contrast between, you know, a, a, a paved walkway and then a light colored dirt path. And I only know that after you know, I have the, the feel. So I did, you know, with your permission, you know, put out some different reflective stuff and, you know, some white chalk markings to be able to increase contrast on turns and different stuff like that. So I appreciate it. Oh, no worries at all. That was, that's easy. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually not so easy for some people. You made it real easy for me. So thanks, Bill. Yeah, no problem. So uh, I think you did what, three laps with your guide and, and these laps are 1.05 miles. And then you're on your own the rest of the time, right? Yeah. 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 I, I wanted to kind of do the beginning uh, with somebody and actually I'd come out and I'd checked out what I thought the course was probably like three weeks before, but I wasn't a hundred percent sure on the yeah, the the course. So once I knew that I had it uh, down, then yeah, I was I was ready to go. Yeah, no, that was cool. And uh, you ended up um, obviously we we started in the morning. You ran, finished in the middle of the night. You finished in about twenty and a half hours, roughly, and ended up winning the hundred mile version of the race, which was just a stupendous achievement out there. It was really really cool. What what I loved was uh, you know obviously I saw you every lap coming around and. Your your attitude was always upbeat, you know. It's you always. I'm not even sure if you always knew who was yelling out to you, but you know, you were always like, you know, rock on, let's go. You know, it was it was just awesome seeing you just cranking out those laps all night. Yeah, I, I, that's one thing with running. It's kind of funny because uh, I always say hi to everybody, and I don't know who anybody is. Like I can I can never <laughs> recognize I can never recognize a face unless I'm about a foot away from you. And when are you ever going to be a foot away from somebody? You're invading their personal space. It's very difficult. What I've learned is I'm just happy to see people. A lot of times I say, you know, when I, 
I run a lot around parks here in Denver and I say hi to people. A lot of times it's the exact same person just doing loop after loop. And they're like, you already said hi to me. I was like, I'm saying hi again. (laughs) (laughs) And it's, you know, my thing is it's always genuine too, because my thing is, yeah, I never want to ask somebody, you know, how you're doing if I'm not willing to stop and actually listen to their answer and partake, you know? And, um, yeah, that's, I don't know. That's, that's part of who I am. I'm glad I was doing that during a hundred mile race, because I got to tell you, sometimes in those hundred mile races, you get kind of loopy and, uh, I, I never wanted to lose that part of me. No. And <laughs> there's a race that literally is loopy. So that's, that's <laughs> what we were doing. So uh, <laughs> it is loopy. Yeah. So no, that, that, uh, it's true. There's a lot of superficiality. I mean, a lot of times we just tell people have a good day and we don't even really think twice about it, you know? So it, it's, I, I believe in having a little more in-depth conversation too. Yeah, that, and th- that's a shame because when, when you do ask and somebody opens up and they become vulnerable and authentic and they're willing to share, ready to share, you know, we need to stop what we're doing and, and give of ourselves. I mean, frankly, that's the only thing we really have is time and how we spend our time and give our time speaks volumes about us, but also volumes about what our priorities are in life. And for me, priorities are helping and supporting other people, you know, no matter, you know, no matter whether it's my family, friends or a stranger. Right. That's what we're supposed to do. So, yeah, absolutely. No, and uh, we can talk a lot more about that. That's uh, a great philosophy there. But speaking of people, you had you had some crew out there, including your mom, right? Ah, uh, yeah, Mama Cindy. <laughs> she <laughs> yeah. goes everywhere. She's the ultimate crew. Oh, yeah. Uh, no, she was awesome. I, I spent uh, several uh, several iterations chatting with her out there. And who, who was the other person out there? There was somebody else with her. Uh, there were actually a couple other people. My cousins came out near the end. Yeah. Uh, one of my uncles from Kentucky came out. Um, there were a couple of racers. Uh, Bill Garner was actually running the race, but uh, he hung out for a little bit with her. Uh, Marquis Price, uh, one of my mom's friends, you know, girlfriends was out there. Right. Sure. Yeah. yeah, that was awesome. I mean, and they had it all set up for you out there. You had your table and, uh, you know, your own personal aid station, which is kind of what we wanted people to do anyway with that race, uh, with the COVID and everything else. But no, it was very cool to see the support crew you had out there. What did you learn from my mom when you were sitting around uh, talking with her? I'm always curious. <laughs> oh, man. You know, problem is she can find me. I don't know if I want to repeat that stuff. No, I'm only kidding. <laughs> no, no, yeah, we just chatted. You know, it was just, uh, she, she's a very warm, uh, you know, just a lovely person. I just enjoy chatting with her. I, I don't remember anything that we uh, did yeah. de- derogatory towards you. So yeah. I, I think it was all good. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, she's 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 a really good person. Another thing too that she really she really likes that. I mean, she's seventy four years old, really, and she goes out there and you know, I mean, here it was a it was a lighted start, but we were going to go through the night possibly. We did go deep into the night, and there's like a seventy four year old person, and it got cold. I did. You know? Yeah, I was just going to say that. Yeah. yeah, and she stays out there loop after loop after loop, and there it was mile loop. So that's a lot of crewing you know? Right. And, uh, you know, I mean, she's amazing. She's, she's really amazing. Yeah, no, it it got chilly that night and, uh, it it was good to see the sun the next morning, but, uh, actually we hit it just about right weather wise because it had been super hot before that. And then we had a cool down. It it just, it all happened at the right time there. So it wasn't too beastly hot out there for September 11th of, uh, um, out, out in Colorado. So it was, uh, it was very cool. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, you, you mentioned uh, you're running around parks and everything. Uh, you, you mentioned to me the other day that you you set some sort of record running in Washington Park here in Denver, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm kind of I'm kind of proud about this one, Bill. Usually I don't say much, but uh, I turned 50 this year, 
I'm in my 50th year right now. And I felt old. I got to tell you. Uh, and <laughs> I've got I news for you, big guy. Mirror, I was like, I, I was like, am I still like above ground, you know, both feet? Cause when I was a kid and I thought about 50, the people I was around, they weren't active or doing stuff. And I kind of saw myself in that, in that same, uh, light, but yeah, I know, I know I'm not. And I kind of had some things I wanted to do. Like I had, I thought about doing a double cross in a bad water, um, you know, run across Colorado, some different stuff, but all this COVID stuff kind of put a damper on those plans and just some different things that happened in my personal life. So I kind of settled in on trying to better my hundred mile record. And it was kind of interesting because as I got deep, I thought I held the hundred mile, you know, road record, which it turns out I didn't. I learned a few months back, there's this lady in Ireland, Sinead Kane. She's just a beast. And, uh, she had ran 1828 and I'd ran 1849. So she actually held the record and I wanted to set a PR my 50th year, but when I learned about Sinead, I was like, I want that record back. Yeah, that's and, a pretty uh, good margin there too. Yeah. Like pretty, 21 minutes. Good. Yeah. Right. Yeah. She, she actually has the world record for 12 hours on a treadmill for females period, sighted or unsighted. She went 81 miles in 12 hours on a treadmill. Wow. Is crazy to me. Well, I mean, and David did 77 miles on a treadmill. So in 12 crazy. hours. Yeah. So yeah. She, <laughs> so she is a beast. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but anyway, this, this past weekend, I, uh, did my own little time trial cause a bunch of races were canceled. I was going to head out to Vegas and, um, run beyond limits, uh, jackpot ultra and they postponed theirs. But this past weekend I went 18 hours, 24 minutes, 19 seconds, got my record back. And, uh, I was happy, man. I did it before I turned 51. So it was, good, <laughs> it was a good weekend. Right. And just so people know, you were running the loops in Wash Park, which is what, like 2.4 miles around. I'm trying to remember how many, how long the loop is there. I was on the inside paved loop and I was following the line and that's 2.25. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, so I guess even that line kind of helps you out, doesn't it? It helped tremendously, you know. I mean, it's just it's the contrast. There's a there's two white lines with a red line in the center, right? And right. there are a couple places where there's poles, but I quickly memorized that. And there's also some places where the the asphalt's cracked. I fell, got bloodied up within the first couple laps there, so I learned where that was at real quick. But uh, yeah, the line helped. You know, there's like no chalk markings or anything like that. The problem with Wash Park though is there it's hilly. It's more undulating than you would think. You know, when you when you do like a couple laps around there, you really don't notice it, but you know, I was doing like 40 plus laps and, and it got a little windy on me too, but you know, it all worked out. The day worked out. So yeah. Plus people. I mean, it's not a uh, deserted park by any means. It's a, it's a busy park. Yeah. I, I crashed into a couple people and they got a little <laughs> upset with me. Had a right? dog jump at me. And it is what it is. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I was one guy. I was a race of one. So what do you want? Man? Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yeah. What did you have for support out there for that race? Mama Cindy. Mama Cindy. Went, all right. Yeah. We started at, uh, I suppose start at 4 a.m., but typical to myself, I was uh, late and on island time. I live six years in Puerto Rico, so I always take island time with me. So <laughs> right. according to island time, I was actually uh, early because I was only a half, half hour late here. So I started just before 4.30 uh, in the morning and it was freezing. It was like uh, in the high 20s. And my mom was out there every you know, wow. loop and uh, she had the aid station and just looped and looped and looped. And then we finished just before 11 PM. 
and mom was out there too. And I had a variety of different guides and uh, come out to help me throughout the day. It was tremendous. I had a tremendous support. Well, that's good. And hopefully yeah. they were out there knocking anybody out of the way who may have, you know, especially those Red Sox fans. They were the ones who were probably out there trying to trip you. <laughs> <laughs> I know who you root for. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, it's my I promise to David that I would rip on the Red Sox in every podcast episode. So <laughs> I just I had to work that in somewhere. Yep. <laughs> Damn Red Sox fans. So glad they couldn't stop you. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, well, that's great. Congratulations on that, man. That's very cool. Thanks. I appreciate it. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, you talk about age. Um, You know, I've had this goal where I want to be, I think, the second person to ever finish the Leadville 100 in four different 10-year age groups. And um, I I think uh, Bill Finkbeiner, who finished the race like 35 times, I I believe he would probably have been the first one. But um, I thought, well, okay, four times, that, that would be great. And then I saw Eugene Brockert. At the American Heroes Run, I don't know if you saw him. He was the 85-year-old we had. Who yeah, came, yep. He came out from Illinois, and he ran 50 miles in 24 hours. And I see that, and it's like, whoa, I, I guess, you know, just because you're in your 80s, that doesn't stop you. You know, I mean, that, that's not a, it's not a barrier. So I'm thinking, well, if I could finish Leadville in my 60s, and then I guess maybe could I look at my 70s? Who knows? So, And you want to talk about positive attitude. I remember Eugene because he was – yeah, he was just consistent, methodical, moving around, and we would chat every time you know we passed one another, and uh, there was a positive attitude and always encouragement from him, just tremendous encouragement. Oh yeah, yeah, awesome yeah. guy. I would love to have him on this podcast sometime. I um, he's one of those older guys though; he only co- corresponds by U.S. mail, so it's kind of tough to <laughs> get a hold of him. But I, I hope maybe he's listening or whatever. We can we can pull this off. I'd love to have him on and hear his attitude because he was great. I'm going in that direction, man. You have the old, the old snail mail is the way to go. I'm telling you. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> I don't know. You know, my, I, I, all of my Christmas cards got delivered in mid-January, the ones I mailed to people, even though I mailed them in mid-December. So I don't know. <laughs> Postal services. <laughs> mail, mail. Yeah. Oh, man. So I hope they get that problem fixed up. But anyhow. Um, hey, let's step back a second here. So, um, yeah. you know, for people who aren't aware of your history and everything, you know, you're, you're growing up and obviously uh, losing your vision. I know you had a, a lots of uh, lots of ups and downs. It wasn't uh, just a, a straight line. Hey, I'm going to become an ultra runner. It's uh, you, you had your moments there. So, could, could you tell folks a little bit more about your past and what led you to where you are today? Sure. So, just like anybody, it's kind of interesting because as you may end up accomplishing, you know, some different things and kind of. The big accomplishment for me ended up being running. I ran across America in uh, average like 51 and a half miles a day and still a top 10 crossing, fastest crossing and first only by a blind person. That's like the big aha. But it's funny, you know, I, I've done stuff before that and I've failed before that. But once you do something large, it's kind of like you get pinned with this thing. And that has nothing to do with who I am as a person, like you said. And, you know, growing up, I've my dad left when I was two, raised by a single mom, Mama Cindy, like I talked about, had right. many struggles, ups and downs there, you know, very difficult financially. And you know, grew up in Colorado, never went to the mountains until I was 40 years old. And I always tell people, I'm like, we never even knew it existed. We didn't have the money to go, you know, skiing or, or sledding or doing this other stuff. I mean, that's like rich sport. You got to have the gas money to get there, first of all. And, uh, you know, my mom was just trying to put a roof over our head and clothes on her back and food on the table and, you know, got some breaks along the way. Uh, my mom ended up getting remarried, very uh, generous 
stepfather and helped us a lot that way. Um, got diagnosed with a degenerative eye disease at 14, told I was going to go blind by the time I was 30, forget about everything. And uh, the good news was I did not listen to that dream killer. And uh, 10 years after the guy diagnosed me with that, uh, I passed the bar exam. I became a lawyer. 20 years after he diagnosed me, I went back to that exact same doctor and told him about the different things that I had accomplished. And uh, meaning being a lawyer, I went on to a business career. I was running GE Capital in the Caribbean. At the time, I was doing Ironman triathlons. I qualified for, I'd done all this stuff. And he was just about to retire. And I remember when I was walking out of his office, he was turning to his secretary, telling her about all the things that I had done. Because for him, you know, this eye disease just blinded people. And when people went blind, they did nothing. They just hung it up. I mean, they just forget about life. And that was my, that was my way of doing like an, I told you so moment, but I had grown and become more mature. I wasn't as angry as about it as I had been growing up. And I was able to do it in an educating way. And, uh, you know, hopefully the idea would be instead of, you know, berating this guy, because you did this to me, it's an educational process of, you know, we're all capable of doing anything. We just do it, you know, a little bit differently. And that's, um, that's something that was, uh, trailed me throughout life. So I was kind of like two decades after my diagnosis, three decades after my diagnosis, when I'm 44 years old, the, the eyesight thing finally catches up to me and I can no longer deny this eyesight thing. I have to stop driving. I'd become unemployed, divorced. I end up in a severe depression. I don't know if I can go on, if I want to go on. And uh, it's like all over again. It's like this guy's diagnosis when he told me, forget about it, you know, and that actually came to roost. I'm like, do I really forget about it? You know, the the federal government sent me a lawyer or a letter saying uh, you're permanently and totally disabled because of my eyesight. And I don't look at myself as being permanently and totally disabled, but apparently how my eyes test, you know, even the government's like, dude, it's over. And, um, you know, it was, it was, you know, I, I sought professional help because I was not safe. I was not healthy. And, uh, the, the psychologist I went to talk to, you know, he asked me 10 questions when I first went and saw him, he told me I'm depressed and, uh, wanted me to get on the meds right away. And I asked if there were any other alternatives and he said, exercise, and, uh, you need to do that four times a day, get your heart rate up. So you're panting, you know, so that you activate the chemicals in your body, then, you know, dopamine and serotonins and endorphins that will combat the depressive uh, chemicals that are, that were working at me. So I said, I'll do that. Absolutely. like the run. And I just, I, I ran and ran and ran bill. And I, I say this all the time, but I ran myself, you know, out of depression. That's how I man currently manage depression. I still battle with it, struggle with it, but uh, that's how I manage it is I get out and I move and I make sure I'm outside I'm getting, you know, my vitamin D and then I'm moving. And, um, you know, from there, as I, that, that was when I was 44, I'm 50 now. So in the last six years, it was a significant change. You know, I was a lawyer, then a business executive, then unemployed, ran across America, come back from my run across America, don't know what I'm going to do. And all of a sudden companies start asking me to tell them their story. And that launched a speaker as a, or a speaker, a career as an inspirational speaker, wrote a book. That's what I currently do. And this year, actually, I started a nonprofit called Inspire Connection, yeah. which is focused on bringing these uh, authentic and vulnerable stories of struggle 
to youth organizations, to youth, in order to normalize tragedy and triumph and bring kids from being in a, a space of isolation into a space of connection. And it's just been an incredible, incredible, you know, ride for, for what it's been. But, uh, you know, we could focus on successes, but the fact is for any success you name that I may have achieved, I've failed, you know, a hundredfold or a thousandfold times the times that I've succeeded. Oh yeah. I mean, even, uh, falling down in Wash Park, right? <laughs> <laughs> yep. A few times. Yeah. So you had a little bit of athletic gene in you, if you would, you know, maybe mental when you, you said you're doing Ironmans back in your thirties in Puerto Rico. Um, what was your impetus to get into that? Because at that time, you knew your, your vision was heading downhill, and, uh, but, but you took this on. Obviously, you, you were determined to maybe show the doctor wrong, or what, what was your motivation at that point? So and there, there's two things there. One, one thing is you've said a couple of times I'm losing my vision, and I always make a point to correct that because I am losing my sight but I'm definitely not losing my vision. Yeah. Okay. Good. And I always, I always make that point, especially for blind people. Cause I, I can't take it when people say that big, you know, as a business executive, I was like, you know, you were driven by our vision. Our vision is comes from our heart. Our sight may come from our eyes, but I'm losing my sight, but I, I, I got my vision's perfect. Um, with respect to my impetus for getting into Ironman and different stuff like that. When I was younger in my teen years, I mentioned my stepfather, Fred Epstein, a tremendous man. He had a brother named Ted and Fred was a lawyer and Ted was a lawyer too. When Ted turned 50, he hung up the law thing and he's like, you know, I'm going to become an artist and I'm going to start doing some endurance stuff. And I didn't think Uncle Ted was special at all, but it turned out Uncle Ted was pretty darn special. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so this guy went from doing nothing to he, he went slow as molasses, but he never stopped. And uh, so my Uncle Ted, he did a ton of stuff. Like the, the first time I was exposed into an endurance event, if you will, my Uncle Ted was going to run a race up in Boulder. So we all got in the car one weekend and we were going to go support Uncle Ted at this race. We went to the CU Fieldhouse. There's an indoor track there. And we show up. There's no cars in the parking lot. I'm like, you know, we at the right place. We walk into the Fieldhouse. It's dark on the inside. I'm like, where's this race? You know, where's the, you know, the hundred meter limp, you know, like it's you know the, the senior <laughs> Olympics or something with uncle Ted. Well, it turns out uncle Ted had staged his own six day race on that indoor one eighth mile track. He had a tent, he had an aid station table. He was on day six and you know, we could see the, this um, silhouette moving around and I walked up and once they explained what was going on, I, I went with Uncle Ted around and around that loop for I don't know how long. He could barely talk. His feet had swollen up like four sizes. And I was I like, I'm telling you a story right now. And I have the same chills and shivers as when I was right next to him. Because I remember him. He could barely like wheeze. He couldn't talk. And he was like, I was barely walking. The guy was like shuffling. Like he's like running. <laughs> and it was unbelievable because I sat there. I'm like, Uncle Ted is like this frail dude, you know, like this lawyer artist you know tall like tall lanky six foot something but he for six days he's been going at this eight hours a day then he'd sleep an hour in the tent then eight hours and sleep an hour in the tent i'm like this is um, a human can't do this like it's not <laughs> possible right and it turns out what uncle ted did he ended up climbing mount kilimanjaro mount vincent in, in uh antarctica he was going to do the seven summits he has swam around uh, Manhattan Island, made it halfway around Hong Kong. He did a DECA Ironman triathlon, meaning 
24 mile swim, 1,112 mile ride, 260 mile run. He was the first person ever to complete the grand slam of triathlon, which is in one year, you do a single, double, triple, uh, quadruple and quintuple Ironman triathlon in one year. And he did that in six months and had back surgery on his di- on a disc. He was the first person to swim across the Bering Strait between oh Alaska <laughs> and Russia. <laughs> right. Won a race running across Siberia, got lost for two days, got found, still won it. I mean, he's in the Colorado Running Hall of Fame. This dude's like, you know, he carried the Olympic torch. Amazing. So that that experience with Uncle Ted and then hearing about this guy's exploits as he went on and he biked across America. He actually ended up having a crash hit a tire in the middle of the road that ended his bike across America. And Uncle Ted actually did pass away. He had Alzheimer's, but passed away when I was running across America in 2016. Uh. But he was the he was the one. And it's kind of it's cool, Bill, because sometimes I go to some of these races where there's a lot of old timers like uh across the years in Arizona, they have like a six day race. And there's a lot of old timers, yeah. you know, 70, 80 year old dudes. And they talk, you know, they start telling the story about this guy. I'm like, that's Ted Epstein, right? Like, yeah. I'm like, that was my uncle. <laughs> and he started telling me, you know, and I was talking with Marshall Ulrich a while back and he's like, yeah, I was the DAC. And he told me a story about, he told me a cool story about my uncle Ted Marsh and uh, my uncle Ted we're training, and this is when the very first eco challenge was going to happen, and they were possibly going to be on the same team. And my uncle Ted was going up and down the stairwell at the DA Denver Athletic Club, and he said, "Hey, Marsh, why don't you come in here and do this with me? Get some dumbbells. And we're just going to go up and down the stairs." And they're going up and down the stairs, and then all of a sudden, my uncle Ted goes, "Stop!" Looks Marsh straight in the eye. Marsh's like, "What's going on?" So Marsh stops, and my uncle Ted puts bends down, puts down his dumbbells, says, "Your shoes untied." Bends down on a knee. Ties Marsh's shoe, turns back around, picks up his dumbbells and says, we all need to treat each other like that. And then keeps going up and down the thing. And, uh, you know, my uncle Ted was just an amazing dude. Just Yeah, you know, I knew the name and uh, I knew about some of his uh, accomplishments. I had never heard about all that. That's just amazing. And uh, I've run in that field house. That thing is a dungeon. You know, (laughs) That's exactly. You know it. You get it. Oh, yeah. You get it. Yeah. Um, I mean, you got that one part in the Northeast corner where you go behind the big posts there. You can't even see somebody and it's dark. It's, it's a cave back there, but, yep, yep, um, you got it. and that it's track crazy. is hard. I, I mean, you know, I, I would run a few races every winter there and I would keep it to that because I'd have shin splints if I ran on that thing more, you know, that thing was so hard. I can't imagine six days of that. Yeah. And they let him yeah. in. They, they didn't care about him being in there for six days. They, uh, it was back, it was back in the day when, People did that kind of thing. So wow, yeah. Do you know what got him started? I mean, you said he didn't start running till he was much later in life, right? He, you know, he just I, I I don't know what I do know. He had this propensity to go long. Like he he used to run um, the local marathon in Denver, like in a tuxedo, and that was kind of <laughs> like his groove. Was kind of like right. a goof. He he um, organized runs for charities. One time, he ran for the police. Uh, and he ran from Georgetown all the way. And there was a race in Denver, like down at Civic Center Park, supporting the police or what have you. So he got a group of people and he ran from Georgetown down I-70 and then into I-25. And then, you know, Rarity Parkway worked his way in on the interstate. And he was escorted by, you know, the police. And I, I hear these stories because I talk about my Uncle Ted. 
other people come from out of the work. Tim Imboden used to spend a lot of time with my uncle Ted. And he was telling me just crazy stories, you know, about that stuff. Tim actually has some of his stuff still, you know, like the Boston Marathon jacket he was going to give me. You know, yeah. It's amazing because other people really don't know my uncle Ted, but to certain people, he, you know, he's just such, you know, inspirations over an overused term, but, you know, he was a man where he changed lives by what he did and just his kind heart and gentle spirit. I mean, he was like, uh, yeah, he was like the Buddha guy, just like with a smile and stuff before <laughs> all this stuff got, you know, kind of like mainstreamed. But, uh, you know, and, and maybe going really long and, and long just calms you down. I know it has for me, even though I'm a little hyper. Imagine me before I was running. <laughs> <laughs> so just seeing him, though, gave you kind of that kick in the butt to do it yourself, huh? Well, he's the one who he I knew I, I knew him firsthand and I knew what he had done. And I knew through him that nothing was impossible. Everything was possible. And, uh, you know, that's probably the greatest gift he ever gave me. And he, he never knew that he gave me. Right. But, um, yeah. Well, he had to have known some of it because, uh, you, you know, you, you accomplished an awful lot before he passed away. Yeah. But Alzheimer's had gotten a hold of him. Oh, had it. Okay. Time. Yeah. yeah. And I, I hadn't really gotten that that far into into doing some different stuff, but I think uh, it did mean a lot. Like his family would tell him when I was off doing different stuff because he, you know, I, I made sure the family knew. Right. About that. No, that's uh, cool. He's an amazing man. Amazing. No, no kidding. I mean, those are just some Herculean feats right there. I mean, I'm always amazed at even how some people think of doing certain things. I mean. Um, I don't know, maybe some people talked about swimming the Bering Strait before, you know, I'm sure it was done by seals or whales or something, but, you know, <laughs> but it, why, I don't even understand why you do that. I'm like, that's like deadliest cats. What are you thinking? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Oh man, that's ballsy to do that. That's great though. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. How long did it take him to do that? Any idea? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I, I don't know how many miles that is, except that Sarah Palin said you could see Russia. So, you know, it's <laughs> it's not 100 miles, but, you know, <laughs> I don't know. Right? Damn, that's something. So at some point, though, you had sort of a reset after you kind of went through, uh, you know, kind of the uh, the downturn. And then you got back into the this idea of um, getting back into it and, of course, running across America. What, what gave you the, the idea to do that? Yeah, it was, uh, it wasn't even an idea so much for me. It was a, a calling, you know, and I, when I, when I tell my story, uh, I go a little bit more in, in depth on this and it is important because, uh, yeah, I, I was in a downward spiral. I was in a very, very bad place. I was very depressed and not safe. And, uh, if something didn't change, I, I would, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know what happened, but um, I help out at a at a homeless shelter when I I had worked in Puerto Rico for six years from 2003 to 2009. Then I came back to Colorado, and that was right when I was about 40. And uh, my neighbor across the street, he used to he helped start this uh, pancake breakfast. You know, basically a bunch of guys got together and funded buying supplies. Then they got together every Friday, cooked pancakes for homeless. Uh, people in Denver, the shelter is called Christ Body Ministries. It's like at Eighth and Lincoln. So I started going, and it was just it you know makes you feel good. Anyway, I, I kept doing it. I ended up getting on the board of this organization, you know, really great organization. And so I'd known about these guys for about four years before I ended up hitting the skids in my depression. And when I got real bad, you know, I I 
didn't have anything to do. It wasn't working. You know, I was depressed. It's not like I'm going to get, I'm going to land a job as an executive when I'm, you know, a mess. And, um, and so I called the executive director and I said, Hey, John, you know, I, I, I need to come down and help. And, you know, I'd always been happy, go lucky, jolly. He's like, no, no, he's okay. And then actually got off the phone. He called me back like five minutes later. He must've heard it in my voice. You know, I was in trouble. He's like, why don't you come down on Thursdays and you know, you can have this job, you know, you work a clipboard and you can manage who gets to do uh, showers and laundry. And, and it's uh, <laughs> so at 10 AM at the shelter, they open the doors and it's first come first serve, you know, Denver's homeless. They come in and for two hours, try to get as many people into these two showers as you can, you know, one at a time. And uh, they get to take a shower and two people get to do loads of laundry. It's all free of charge. But I was the guy who worked the clipboard to make sure that, you know, people got in line and they got in and out and did their thing. And I did that every Thursday and I would run down there from my house. Well, one particular Thursday I was doing that and I had just gotten one of my friends into the shower, a lady named Ursula. She always gave me a hard time. <laughs> it took longer than her 20 minutes <laughs> and uh, doing her shower, but it's still my bud. And uh, it, what I did when the person got in the shower is I got a new towel. I got the little travel size shampoo and conditioner and a little travel soap. And I got ready so that when Ursula got out, I could you know reload the place, clean it up, wipe it down and get the next person in there as quick as possible. And, um, I was doing that and it's, it's like this little hallway and there's a galley kitchen off your left. And you hear a couple of people you know, singing in the showers and the you know, laundry is kind of like making noise. And all of a sudden it starts getting quiet, like, like drowning silence. I was like, what's going on? Like all this, you know, silence. And I had a thought that was pushed into my head, which was, I am running across America like fact. And then all of a sudden, like the sound came back and it, I didn't hear voices or something like that, but this was not my thought. This was like something else. And it scared me. I was like, what just <laughs> happened? And me being the good, having a good legal background, a good lawyer I am, I could pick anything apart. You know, I, I was like, I knew exactly what happened, Bill. I know that happened for a fact, but as a lawyer, if I wanted to act like that didn't happen, I could be like, oh, I didn't get enough sleep or you know, whatever, just ignore it and push it to the back of my mind. But you know, I, I'm like, I got to hold myself accountable. I know, I know what just happened. And I was like, if I don't tell somebody, I'm going to, I know what I'll do. So I texted my mom. I said, I am going to run across America. And within five seconds, she texted back and said, I'm in. And that began an 18 month journey um, to try to figure out how to do it, to train up, to fundraise, to do all the stuff and take my first step from Santa Monica Pier. So wow, that, that, that's how that whole thing began. It was appalling. <laughs> yeah. So uh, when you said it, it took eighteen months, so you had all this logistics to figure out, right? Yeah. 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 What yeah, kind it, of challenges yeah. was that? <laughs> uh, huge. <laughs> yeah. So so it's kind of it's interesting because when you talk to people about it, everybody thinks, oh, it's like a race, or it's like you know, it's like everybody thinks like it's like some you know or. Everest, like there's guides or something. There's no guide. There's no book. Right. There's no anything. You know, and there's no rules. You can start wherever you want. You can end whenever you want. You can, you know, do whatever. I mean, there's, it's this wide open candidate. And I always say it was a true, it was an expedition. It was like Christopher Columbus setting off into the new world or you know, I'd always make a joke. Like we're in the backyard figuring out how to go to the moon. Cause we are like, there's no, 
there are no rules, there are no parameters, and you got to try to figure out how to make it you know, work and actually survive, you know, and, and um, so it was, you know, the logistics were tremendously overwhelming. Thankfully, probably about four months into it, I had a, a young lady named Carly Gearhart who heard about what I was doing. And she was a, a guide at Achilles uh, organization that guides challenged athletes. She heard about what I was doing and yeah. she said, I want to volunteer and help you. And she started volunteering with me like 40 hours a week and doing her job, her regular day job, 40 hours a week. And really? she was tremendous with helping. Yeah. And what kind of details did she handle for you? Oh my gosh. Uh, let's see. She actually pulled together the route, which n- did not get locked in until three weeks before my takeoff. And I had attempted to do that thing for God knows how long. It, and, you know, I remember, you know, she, she kept seeing me struggle. I kept, you know, pushing her out, you know, you know, help with the website or, or help with, you know, whatever details. She's really good with graphic design and computer stuff or things like cited stuff, things that required like a lot of sight. Yeah. And she would just jump in anything, anywhere, any detail. Cause I am not the most detail oriented person. You know, as I've worked in different executive roles, I'm more of like the strategic visionary. And then I have an assistant who helps with like the tactical details. So I was having all these, you know, as I was doing this visionary stuff, I was having all these unattended to details. So she just was cleaning up all of, you know, this, wake of details that I was leaving behind. And, um, you know, the, the route was an interesting thing because like, like I said, like with three weeks to go, I'd kind of told her where I was trying to go. And I was trying to do this on map quest. It kept blowing up every time I did it like three times. I was totally devastated. I told her she went home, came back the next day. She's like, Jason, I emailed you a link, click on that button. And I clicked on the button bill and it did this, like, I don't know what program got launched or website, but it did like a flyover from Los Angeles through to New York to Boston, like going and like in one day. And I was sitting there like, how did this happen? Like, <laughs> right. you know, I was like, oh my God, you're, you know, and she kind of laughs. Like it really wasn't that hard. <laughs> it was really hard for me. So. Yeah. And, yeah. and so I wonder what kind of accommodations, what kind of routes she may have laid out for you in that. So back in the nineties, uh, 93, 94, 95, there was a Transamerica run. Yep. Uh, two guys organized this run. It was 64 days. It was it's kind of a stage race. Uh, I think everybody had like 11 hours each day to run whatever stage they were running. And I would pick up with them. That was just when I was getting into ultra running myself. And I wanted to learn from these guys. So I would pick, up the, pick them up um, on the other side of the Continental Divide in Colorado. I think we used to start over in uh, Frisco or Dillon, something like that. And we'd run over Loveland Pass and go down to Georgetown and then run down you know, the I-70 service road and eventually run all the way through Denver out to Byers out east of Denver was, is where I would stop with them. So I used to run with them for about four days, I think it was. But when they came through Denver, they would run right down Colfax, you know, the, the, the grittiest, uh, uh, uh. grimiest street in town. But it, the thing is, Colfax is known as the longest city street in the country. It, it is continuous all the way through from the west side, all the way through the east side. It's just one straight shot. The only yeah. uh, deviance is, uh, you know, just they got to go around the Capitol. But besides that, it's a straight shot. And I asked the organizers, like, why in the hell would you run on Colfax? It's the ugliest part of the entire city here, you know? And they said, because it's straight. You know, it's just, it was easy. We don't have to make any turns or anything. Now, in your case, I wouldn't imagine that your assistant would have you run right down Colfax because of, you know, the traffic and, you know, the sidewalks and and everything else. I mean, what kind of route did she choose for you to go through, say, in a a, a metropolitan area? 
Yeah, what we did is we avoided uh, major cities and yeah. ran country roads. When you get to the cities, you slow down necessarily because you're going through all these you know, stops and stuff. If you can stay on a country road and avoid it, you're way better. And it's illegal to run on interstates. A lot of times when you are running on busy streets like Colfax, you'd get thrown off. And for me, running on sidewalks is no good because of all of the tripping hazards. It's better for me to be like on a street, one flat surface with less um, you know, opportunities yeah, for tripping. that's so, what I would have figured, right? Yeah, we avoided that altogether. The other thing too is just it depends on the time of year that you're you're going on with, you know, crossing deserts or different types of things like that. And, you know, with me and my mom, my, you know, we, we had a van that was going across and that was the crew vehicle. It wasn't like there was, you know, um, I, what, what I think is, I think if it's an organized race, I think you're going to have a better shot jumping from city to city because of supplies. Right. Because if you have a group of runners that you're trying to supply for, trying to get supplies out in the middle of no man's land. I mean, for like a couple of weeks, all we did was eat out of gas stations or a convenience store truck stops, you know? And I mean, that's <laughs> right. disgusting food, but, um, you know, I, I think it's just different on how you did it. Was that the, I, I heard about, uh, transcontinental races. There was one, you know, not so long ago, Sweeney had ran across. I remember that. And then, um, that, I think you're talking about like the days when Dave Horton ran across. Yeah, he was not in the race though. But uh, yeah, there, there was, it was a that group. Time period. Yeah, it was right, roughly that time. Like say, it was the uh, '93 through '95. They had that, and okay. um, yeah, I remember. You know, even those guys. Um, I remember one guy was telling me he was really ecstatic to be getting towards Denver because his feet had swelled up from size 10 to size 13 and his shoes weren't fitting anymore. And of course they'd been running through the Utah desert. There's no running stores out there. So he was just yeah. happy to get to Denver so he could buy a new pair of shoes. Um, yeah. I remember some of those guys used to make fun of me because, um, you know, after running and the, you know, they weren't getting new supplies. Well, the organizers would drive ahead in their van and they would throw like power bars out on the pavement for these yep. guys to just pick up like every mile. And I'm out there running, and I would pick them up and eat them. And they were they were making fun of me because they were sick of them. They, you know, they, these guys had seen enough power bars, and they used to joke about how these power bars all had skid marks on them from the m- number of times these guys were throwing the the power bars out of the door of the van, and just you know they're sliding on the pavement, and and then they're getting picked up again because nobody was eating them, and but there I was eating them. <laughs> <laughs> Clean up crew did. Yeah, pretty much. And of course, back then, you know, power bars was all there was for aid station right. food, so to that's speak. Right. Yeah. So, uh, well, that's incredible. How many days did the whole thing take you? 59 and a half. 59 and a half. And uh, what kind of uh, interesting, uh, you have any interesting mishaps or, you know, things, eventful things that happened along the way? Well, you know, I, I always uh, talk about that. One, one of the great things I learned from that run is that America is – 99.99% flipping awesome. Like, I love it. Yeah, you know, there's some boneheads out there. Well, that's the 0.01% is Fenway Park in Boston, right? <laughs> I'm yeah. not going there, man, I actually like Boston. <laughs> I I'm kidding. I like yeah. North End. I got no problem. Oh, yeah, no, it's but, good. <laughs> uh, uh, it, you know, it was, it was good. You know, the, some of the things that I really remember was the kindness of people and the kindness of strangers and, you know, a lot of times I'd be running down the road, you know, down a highway or it's not an interstate, but a, a, a smaller highway. 
and people would pull over and they'd be like, Hey, you know, get in the car. Where's your car broke down? I'm like, no, no, it's okay. I'm running. <laughs> and I, you know, I'm out in the middle of a place where there's not runners. And they, they, they're like, where are you running into? I'm like, New York. You know, maybe I'm in Kansas and they look they're like, <laughs> what? Right. And, uh, you know, they would come back and they'd bring me like a hamburger or one guy pulled over and he said, come here. I went over there. He pulled out his wallet, took everything out of his wallet, put it in my hand. And he was like in tears. He's like, you know, my name is Bill. Do not stop. And then he drove off. And I was like, what was that? And I opened my hand like a hundred dollars in cash. He'd wow. just given me. And it was just like hope, you know, this, this one lady uh, on the way out to the start, we were driving out and we'd stopped at this restaurant and got some food. And my mom was telling the lady I was going to run across America. This is in Arizona. So we drew, ended up, you know, she got all excited and uh, she's like, okay, I'll follow you. And, and um, we drove out to California, then started our way back. And it was a few weeks between those two incidents by the time I got back to that part. And when I got back to near where she was at, she actually came out to the highway, waited two hours with her teenage daughter and brought me a chimichanga with no sour cream. That was exactly what I ordered three <laughs> weeks before when I'd seen her. And I was in horrible shape at that point in time, had a bunch of stuff happen with my family personally happened, you know, happened. I was in horrible pain and just wanted to give up. And then here's this stranger who comes out and does, I mean, who does that bill? Right. You know, who, who does that? And there were just, there were so many of those types of stories of just amazing kindness people. There was this other great story. We're in Pennsylvania. So we're getting like 2,500 miles across America and I'm, Running down, I got to make a right-hand turn in about like another two blocks. And there's this, the older gentleman, you know, chrome dome, white hair, kind of longer, hanging off, a little overweight, probably like about, you know, 200, 220 pounds, probably like about 5'3", white t-shirt, you know, darker pants, probably jeans or something like that, waving one arm, you know, comes at me as I'm running. I'm kind of like, oh, it's going. He's like, I'm like, hi, I'm running across America. My name is Jason. He's like, I know who you are. I was like, oh, shoot, what's going on? Right. And he comes up to me, you know, because he's he's walking straight at me. He's walking with purpose. Like, I stop. He's still walking at me, same pace. Grabs me in a bear hug. He's like, I'm a Vietnam vet. The federal government should be supporting what you're doing. I've been following you all the way since you left Los Angeles. Gives me a big, yeah, I turn my head just in time. <laughs> gives me a big old kiss. Probably otherwise would have kissed me on the lips. He's like, where's your mother? I was like, oh, shoot. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and I was like, she's right there. Like, she was right behind me because we were going to make a turn. And I was laughing because I was like, he's going to kiss my mom. Right. And he goes <laughs> right up to my mom. And he's you know very respectful. Gives my mom a $5 bill. Says, this is for you guys. You guys are doing amazing stuff. You know, goes on this whole thing about how, you know, he's a proud to be an American. You know, what we're doing is the American spirit. And just, you know, gives my mom this big old bear hug and, you know, waves us on, we go by, he's like clapping for us. I mean, that, th how does that happen, Bill? You know, that is just so It's beautiful. awesome. It yeah, is, a yeah. A total stranger hears about this and then follows you for like, you know, six, seven weeks and then goes out and does that. It's just, it was beautiful. Like, man, humankind is beautiful. It is 99.99% beautiful. That's what I learned. Yeah, humbling, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, no, and, uh, you know, especially in troubled times like we're in, it, it is nice to know that deep down there's a lot of good people out there who will go out of their way for you, perfect strangers, to help you yeah. out. That's, that's awesome. Yeah. I, th I think it's still there. What I think is, 
you know, it, for some reason, as humans, we're drawn to the drama and negativity for some reason. It's kind of like our drug. But that's that's the other thing, too. I challenge everybody I come into contact with, you know, make sure, especially in these times, <clears throat> you're consuming good content for your mind and your heart. We talk about it all the time for our bodies, right? We go on all these different diets to get all this, you know, genetically modified organisms or all this garbage out of our food system. But we also, that's just the body. We need to make sure we feed our mind and our spirit really healthy, positive content. Don't sit there and, you know, focus on, you know, what's on the news. All they do is like, you know, doom and gloom, you know, find a good podcast, find good stories, uh, you know, read a book. You just get good, positive content into your body and you'll be a lot healthier for it. No, oh, without a doubt. You know, it's, uh, you can get consumed in the political culture we have, the news culture, as you said. I mean, I, I think that's why I always gravitated towards sports in the first place, because sports is the great escape. You know, it's, I mean, it's not always uh, rainbows and uh, unicorns, uh, especially when you're a New York fan, but um, at the same <laughs> <laughs> Relentless. Yeah, relentless. relentless. <laughs> yeah. But, but still, it's, uh, it is a refuge from a lot of the crap that goes on. And uh, I know if something bad happens, um, after a day, I have to turn it off, you know, on the TV, you know, some sort of crisis or whatever. It's like, I can't watch that news coverage because it does bring you down. You're right, Jason. It's just, it, it permeates your soul. And it's yeah. so much better to hear a positive that, story, such as what you're describing even on your uh, run through Pennsylvania there. Yeah. And that's, you know, I, I think that's also the reason too. Uh, you know, we need to greet each other. We just need to connect with each other. And maybe that's, maybe that's one of the great things that my low experiences have taught me is that people are the answer. Because when I've struggled, went through some very difficult times when you're doing it alone and you're, you know, you just, I continue to spiral but there's always at least one person that reaches out that hands you a lifeline that hands you their hand and with more people that's how we get through this and that's frankly what life's about life's not about you know going through it alone it's about being connected with other people in order to connect with other people we need to open ourselves up and that's that, that that's some of the hardest work that we we all have throughout our entire lives is how do we how do we open up authentically and be vulnerable and be okay with that. And that's the huge, you know, that's the huge journey because when I talk about when I went through my crisis at age 44, it was, I could no longer hide this piece of me, this blindness part of me that I was shameful of. I, I was shameful about having a disease I didn't even ask for, but I didn't tell anybody about it. I had like this tremendous shame. I was not my authentic self. I would not tell anybody. I would not be vulnerable about it. But there, got, there came a point in time where I had no choice but to do that. And when I did do that, that's when I was able to truly start connecting with people. And it's kind of interesting because it's, you know, my, what I thought was my biggest curse has become my, also my biggest blessing. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm good with myself now. You know, I, I, I yeah. look in the mirror and I, I like myself. And that's, you know, when you don't like yourself because you have this disease for decades, it really messes you up. And, uh, you know, that was the first 44 years of my life. And then the last six years, you know, with good therapy, a whole, you know, thousands and thousands of miles of running and a lot of really <laughs> great people, you know, I've gotten to a point where I, I really, I do love myself and, uh, I, and being that way, I'm able to love other people. So right. that's, 
that's the most critical piece. Absolutely. That's where it starts. You know, David obviously uh, talked about that a lot. And, you know, for in his case, he felt the shame of being a huge dude with addictions. Uh, I mean, he literally described it as shame. And um, it wasn't until he achieved that vulnerability and opened up about it. And it's the same journey a lot of people go through. I've, I've talked to so many people who have lost weight, overcome addictions, achieved great things. And a lot of it comes from that vulnerability piece there. That uh, And so when you got to the finish line on, on your run, um, I don't know if you dipped your toe in the Atlantic Ocean or whatever you did. Did you really think that, hey, this is going to lead to a book? This is going to lead to my myself opening myself up vulnerability-wise and to starting this new nonprofit, et cetera? Did you really have a vision towards that? Or was it just, okay, I got done with this and let's see where this takes me? Heck no. It was a, so it was a calling from God. I figured I was hopeful that I was going to hit that the end of it and God is going to be like zap, right? Because God can do anything. And all of a sudden I'd be able to see eagle eyes. I'm like, oh, great. You know, I can go back to work. You know, I can do the different stuff that like I, you know, did, didn't happen that, you know, I was like, they'll make a movie. All the scientists will test me. You know, I, I just like had hope, like something good, like that was going to happen, like according to my plan. And not, that did not happen. My eyes actually got worse over the run my eyesight got worse and I got to, I was like, okay, now what? And you know, I remember we were, you know, cause it wasn't like, it's not like the movies, like, you know, there's thousands of people or something. Like I got there, I was like, wow, this is, you know, me and my mom were just happy to be alive and that it was over. Right. And then my mom's driving us back. It's a three day drive back to Denver. Um, both my, my two of my kids continued. So I got to see that, but then I came back to my same house where I was depressed at before and I, I was scared. I was like, oh, no. I just did that. I was like, the depression's going to come. I was like, I know it's going to come. I'm just sitting here. I, what now? You know, like, I was just waiting for doom to come again. And uh, instead of doom coming again, the phone rang. And, you know, then, you know, it began. I remember the first time I got asked to talk, they, they're like, we want you to tell us your story. I was like, what story? <laughs> now, what what story do you want? They're like, well, right. you run across America. I was like, I, I ran across America. I, what else do you want me to tell you? You know, <laughs> right? And uh, so, you know, I the the first time I ever told the story, it was, you know, it was all over the place. But people clapped, and I was like, oh my gosh! And I'd given presentations before because I, you know, I used to lead General Electric down in the Caribbean, and you know, I used to motivate a workforce, but not like this. I mean. When you're at work, you never try to get a standing ovation from your employees. You know, you're not that, or I didn't. <laughs> Better not, and, right? <laughs> uh, so what, what happened is when I started this speaking thing for six months, I, I was like, I got to figure out how to do this. I'm, I'm not going to, you know, be one of those speakers. Because I'd I, 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 I listened to too many speakers before where, you know, they get up, you feel something for like a half hour or, you know, you feel engaged, you know, engaged or inspired by their story. And then, you know, you walk off, you're like, I don't even remember what the person's name was or what they did or that type of thing. Right. And there was a quote by Maya Angelou that I heard early on, which was, they will never remember what you say. They will never remember what you did, but they will always remember how you made them feel. And that was my thought mm-hmm. is if I was going to start doing the speaking thing, I had to take my audience on an emotional journey. And it's a one-way diet. It's a one-way monologue. And it's 30 to 40 minutes. And how do you take a person that you, you're in a room of hundreds of people on this emotional journey? You got to open up, be vulnerable. And so for six months, I sat in my house. I started creating a, a pitch, a deck, something that can 
visually, you know, complement the story I was going to tell. And I videotaped myself and every day for six months, I would give the same thing over and over and over. The next day I would watch it. I'd watch five TED Talks. I'd made my kids sit there. You know, my kids know my talk like inside <laughs> out, upside down. They make fun of me now. But uh, that's how I learned, you know, the core of my message. And now that I've learned that, you know, it's been easy to expand, you know, and writing books and you know, I'm on my second book. I'll release my second book, The Success Cycle, this year in 2021. And uh, there's just, a, you, you have a lot of opportunity to share with people because like you said, I think everybody goes through what, what I call, you know, I actually, I didn't create it. Joseph Campbell kind of coined the term, but the hero's journey, the hero's arc. It's kind of where you go through, you know, you, you're in this, this safe place. All of a sudden you go out, you know, on this adventure, you get, you have this huge challenge. You have these, you know, protagonists, you have helpers along the way, you go through the total breakdown chasm. You have no idea how you're going to get out. Then you start creating and working the solution. Then you actually find your way out and then you get back to the safe zone again. And then it starts all over. Right. You know, and we all do that, but that's really, I think what the, what the attraction is to this, you know, the, the feat just happens to be some blind dude, you know, the feet was running across America and some blind guy did it. And it's really hard to imagine that. But I, I think everybody has that exact same story. And I think we all live that. I think we all just need to be reminded about it. And the more inspiration we can have, you know, the, the better life is. That was a huge long answer to your question, but no, I did <laughs> no not problem. think that my run across <laughs> America would lead to anything that's happening right now. No, you've totally dispelled this notion, though, that you said you're not organized because you obviously spent a lot of time crafting your talk. So uh, that, that shows pretty <laughs> incredible organization skills right there. Uh, a lot of practice. Well, it's like, it's like anything, I think, is like a lot of practice. It's funny because, you know, even right now, I, I get asked a lot of times. Yeah, I've had some really big talks. Like I went to Amazon's headquarters, been keynotes for you know, big conferences, conventions, stuff like that. But I still, you know, I don't consider myself Tony Robbins or something like that. I don't want to be Tony Robbins, you know, <laughs> but, uh, but I would love to have access to like that Vegas convention of, you know, that 10,000 person crowd and be able to share that message because with more people delivering a message like that, it is contagious, it's infectious, and you have much more energy to permeate people's soul. And if you do it the right way, you can change a, a trajectory. Um, you know, you can just change a trajectory. No, absolutely. And, and I like that quote by Maya Angelou you gave before about it's how you make people feel because, yeah, at the end of the day, um, you know, when I do speaking, um, I'm not sure if everybody rem- – I, I try to make my talk about a lot. I tell a lot of stories that yeah. you, you hope would stick with people. But in the end, it's like – do they feel that positivity? That, that's what I'm trying to convey to people. And so, yeah, if any talk, any time you take a class or whatever, it's that one golden takeaway. And if it's just, hey, I know how to feel positive. I know how I can step out of my comfort zone and accomplish something. Whatever it is, that one takeaway is good enough, right? Yeah, yeah. One one takeaway. And the other thing always, even if you only affect you know, one person. You know? Right. I mean, <laughs> I, I've come to talks where there's uh, thousands of people in a room, you know, they give you a standing ovation afterward. And I've come to a talk where there's two people sitting there. Right. And you're like, okay, <laughs> yeah. I said, I was going to give this talk. I'm going to give this talk. And it's the three of us right sure. here right now. And it's all of those, you know, different, I haven't gotten goose egg yet, which I'm sure will come one day, 
but it's it's all of those things in between. And what the fact is, you know, what's interesting is, you know, when there was just us three people in the room, we could all sat at a table. Each one of us told us, you know, tell me about a struggle that you've had, shame you've had about it, and tell me how you've solved solved it and gotten through it. Yeah. And each one of us would have inspired, you know, the other person. And, you know, that, that makes you feel it's that authenticity. Like, you know, you and I have had converse, you know, some conversation before we got on this and uh, you know, you, you shared some different stuff that stuck with me that I'm, you know, I'm, I'm remembering, like I, I know because it made me feel, but what makes me feel may make, not make another person feel as long as you can affect one person. It's worth it, man. And no, absolutely. I know when I look at an audience, I used to do a lot of speaking for a crisis center here in Denver. And I would go do a a speaking engagement and immediately as I'm talking, I would split the room into three pieces. Mm -hmm. There were the people there who were for me already. Whatever I'm talking about, they they are on my side. A third of the room, they're against me. They're not going to change their mind no matter what. I would try to find the people in the room who I could see were sitting on the fence. And those are the people I kind of address my talk to. Those are the people I thought, well, if I can just pull one or two of them over to the positive side, then I've accomplished something because I'm not going to change the minds of anybody already for me or the people who are against me. But like you say, if there are one or two people that I can influence, then great. I've accomplished my purpose. Yeah. 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 It's when the student is ready, the master will appear. And, you know, when the person's ready to hear the message and ready to make a change, it doesn't matter who's at the front of the room, you know, right. uh, They will, they will grab onto what they need to make a change. And in the meantime, that's our job. Whenever we get in front of other people's, you know, to do the best that we can, because there people are ready. People are ready to, just like you said. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, tell me a little bit more about the, uh, this nonprofit you have, because that's kind of what it's all about, right? Is going out and, and speaking to various groups to share a message, right? Yeah, I am really, really excited about this. It's called Inspire Connection. And uh, just filed all my paperwork, you know, sent it to the federal government, you know, paid my fees. And uh, it grew, what it grew out of is the speaking that I have been doing for the last several years. And 10% of my speaking is paid. And then nine, that goes to subsidize the 90% that is unpaid and basically my give back. And I do that a lot of times to schools, to youth organizations, uh, nonprofits, places where people are struggling, you know, youth detention centers, halfway houses, whatever. Because it's a you know message of of overcome adversity, struggle, hope, and um, what I've been told a lot of times by people, yeah, you should have a nonprofit, you should do this stuff. I'm like, I don't want to run something. I just want to deliver a message. Well, what I realized, Bill, is me as Jason Romero, I can only reach a certain amount of people. Like if I'm not speaking, I'm not reaching them. I mean, I can have some different stuff on YouTube and stuff like that, and I do create content. You know, people want want that. You know, it's available. And it can have an impact, but you know what we need is we need more inspiring stories. And I believe every single person has an inspiring story, but we're not always willing to share that and be authentic and vulnerable. So the idea with Inspire Connection is to get people and develop speakers to tell their story in an authentic and vulnerable way and bring that story to youth. A lot of times that's in classrooms, classrooms, but basically any place where youth are organized, youth groups, youth organizations, that type of thing. And the concept is when you bring these stories of struggle and shame and solution 
in an authentic and vulnerable way and deliver that to youth, what it does is it normalizes tragedy and subsequent triumph over that. That will bring a youth from a place of isolation into a place of connection. And this I know because I have done this for the past several years and I have experienced this firsthand where youth come from a place of being totally isolated, dealing with their own trauma, and they come out and they tell you something, you know, really, really tough, tough stuff. But it brings them out. Instead of being alone, it brings them out. And that is the idea behind Inspire Connection. The other thing that's important is the work that I do with youth, if if this if this Inspire Connection place doesn't work and Jason gets hit by a car tomorrow and I'm toast, like I, you know, I die, it's over right? It, but if I create Inspire Connection, this will go beyond me. This is succession planning for these inspiring stories to be able to get to youth organizations. And guess what? For adults and other people who are willing to tell those stories, authentic and vulnerable, meaning, hey, you know, here I am all nice dressed up executive, but guess what? I dropped out of high school. I never graduated. Here's what I had to do. Here's the tough things I had to do. I had to sleep in my car, but you know, I got this and this and this, and now here I am. And for a youth to hear that is amazing. Or for somebody else, yeah, I, I was molested as a child. It was very difficult. These are things I went through. I don't talk about this with anybody, but I'm talking about it with you. Guess what? For youth who've gone through these very difficult things, that makes them isolate. They don't want to tell anybody. It gives them an avenue for connection. It's a solution. And it's something that, you know, it's going to help speakers. It's going to help youth. And it's going to be huge. The great thing too is it can be delivered around the world now. I've actually been giving talks in different countries. I spoke in in the past couple of months, Pakistan and South Africa alone, and then also in U.S. schools as well. So it can be delivered virtually. Uh, and it's going to affect thousands and thousands and thousands. So Inspire Connection. It's only been going for a couple of months, but be on the lookout for it. Nice. Yeah. And of course, uh, now it can only be done by Zoom. So <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Oh, wow. So, uh, you know, you get that pitch down. Well, that, that's great. But, you know, going back to my crisis center talks, I mean, it was the same thing. I would sometimes finish a talk and somebody would kind of sheepishly come up to me afterwards. And I always knew what was coming. And they would basically open up and said, I have never confronted this before. What happened to me when I was, you know, some, some time in my past, and um, it was gratifying to be able to get somebody to come out and talk to them about what they possibly need to do as their next steps. And, you know, I'd have people come up to me who had had something happen to them recently or even 20 years ago. And, you know, that was uh, very impactful when you realized, you know, again, you talk to a whole room and maybe it didn't affect a lot of people, but you reach that one person there, you know, that was... You know, Bill, that speaks volumes about you and about what you do as a speaker because... That, that just says whatever you were saying, you were speaking from the heart and the layers of the onions were not there and you were vulnerable and authentic because the only way you have that type of a response, you know, when you are vulnerable, it is scary as hell and it gives other people permission to be vulnerable and inspires them. So whatever you did and whatever you've done, I know you've done, you know, the exact type of work that, uh, that I'm talking about. You know, it's it's great to know that you do that. And I actually, I'm, I'm going to be hitting you up to be one of my speakers. So be ready for that. 
<laughs> okay. Thanks for exposing yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Damn it. No, 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 no. I pay really good. It's a nonprofit. Chick-fil-A coffee. <laughs> uh, Chick-fil-A. Oh boy. I, <laughs> I may hold out for a uh, bag of carrots, but <laughs> no, there you go. you're on, man. Uh, my, my pleasure. I'd be very, very happy to be part of that. I, uh, I'm honored by the uh, opportunity. So um, that's cool. You know, you know, you talked about letting these kids maybe talk about the tragedy in their lives. And is that a good thing in your opinion? I'm being a little bit devil's advocate here in that um, obviously younger minds, their, their, their brains aren't as developed yet. Is it a good thing to have them come out and suddenly realize that, Hey, I need to talk about this kind of thing. Yeah. I, th- I think with anything that we struggle with, it's important to get help. You know, this is, <clears throat> this is, definitely my journey because I've been, I was raised in a, in a, in an environment that was thought, you know, if you, if you seek help for mental health, you're weak, right? Or you can't handle it. It's like there was this taboo on mental health, right? It's only physical health. Well, I had to overcome that. And it's very critical and very important that, you know, we, we acknowledge mental health, you know, we break the stigma and I speak openly about depression. A lot of people have a lot of, you know, more stuff, but that's my thing that I deal with. And I think it's very important. You know, it's important to get to people who actually, you know, are professionals and you seek that type of health. Um, And just FYI with Inspire Connection, the idea is to have adults bring their stories to youth, not necessarily to have the youth speak about their own circumstances, but for youth to be able to relate to the fact that, oh, there's an adult, they went through the same thing I went through, or I am going through, or I may go through, but they got through it. It's that story of hope. It's letting them know that there's that, you know, that hero's arc. There's that journey back to the safe place. Right. Um, I, I believe it's very healthy uh, for kids to definitely to speak about their issues, but they should be speaking with somebody who is well qualified, trained, and a you know good therapist. You know what? The really nice thing now is, uh, even in Colorado the age of consent for kids to be able to receive mental health treatment with or without a parent's consent is the age of 12. They've actually lowered that so that kids oh, wow. can get access um, to mental health services if they need it. Even, you know, if there's this stigma within their home about mental health, you know, like it's a taboo. Could and, be, sure. Yeah. The other thing that's, that's nice is they've actually uh, installed uh, in Denver public schools, specifically um, different centers, mental health centers with additional crisis counselors, to be able to get these kids health. And I believe mental health has become a lot uh, bigger thing. So I definitely believe, you know, the conversation about it, it, it is a good thing, but it needs to be done with, you know, empathetic people and people who are well-trained. Yeah. And I think more kids who have role models who expose themselves, uh, so to speak, uh, with their mental health issues, you know, pro athletes and uh, others in the spotlight, I think will help those kids be able to realize that it's not such a stigmatized thing to come out and talk about the, their mental issues. I mean, when you see the statistics about how many kids deal with issues like that, it's staggering. So I, I think it's great. They'll have more voices out there to let them know it's okay. Yeah. And yeah, the, the fact is built, we, we all struggle with something, right? I mean, I, on oh, this sure. podcast, I talk about, you know, blindness, depression, but everybody does. I run around with a sign that says blind, but you know, do other people run around with a sign that says, you know, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, <laughs> you know, breast cancer, or you know, whatever, like every divorce, yeah, you know, everybody's struggling with something, you know, COVID-19 that we could even, you know, there's a trauma for that. I'm sure, you know, everybody's struggling with something, man, you know, but we, we just, 
we, we help each other and there's ways through it too. You know, the, the, the way that you get through, you know, your first broken bone, that's how you're getting through, you know, COVID too. You're just using the processes differently. No, absolutely. So, yeah. yeah so what's your uh, book going to be all about? You want to let people know a little bit more about what they're going to learn in there? Sure. Yeah. So my, my first book was called Running Into the Dark and it was really a memoir and about my run across America. Uh, it started out as a journal you know, to my kids so that they would know my life story and other people ended up becoming really interested in it. So that was, you know, great. I went to these different talks and as I gave different talks, I'm, I'm not a writer. I wasn't planning on writing a second book, but as I went to these different talks, I had people come up to me afterward and they said, how do I do what you did? I'm like, what run across America? <laughs> They're like, no, like, how do you go through the failure and the the, the total fallout and then make the comeback. And, you know, I thought I had that question asked me a ton of times. I didn't realize it was so interesting. And, you know, my short answer was, you know, you just don't quit, but that's not appealing to everybody. They're like, well, how does that happen? So I, as I look back at my professional life, at my spiritual life, as, at my life in relationships, at my athletic adventures, I always have, you know, the same type of thing. And, and I call it, you know, the success cycle in, it comes with, you know, basically, how do you transform a dream, an intangible dream, just a thought? How do you transform that into a manifested reality? And there's, you know, we all have that dream, right? And sometimes they become real and sometimes they're forever left abeyant. And it's that process that I use in any event for how we do this. And I don't look at what I'm you know, putting out. It's called the success cycle. And it, it's basically a pocketbook and it takes people through this step-by-step process of here's how you do it. And really there's a few crux points where it's a decision whether you quit and throw in the towel or whether you continue on. And uh, the most important piece in there is the conversation about failure and resilience, because in my mind's eye, uh, failure is definitely part of the success cycle. If you don't fail, you're not dreaming big enough or you're not aiming high enough you know if you if you yeah. get everything right the first time without failure <laughs> you know, dream bigger you right. know <laughs> you know epic shit you know do epic shit and that requires epic failures and many epic failures and uh you know that's that's what the book is about it's basically how do you transform a dream into a manifested reality gotcha and so it, you're hoping to inspire people to take on epic shit kind of stuff or just maybe the um, stepping out of their comfort zones in their daily lives or who, who are you aiming this toward? Yeah, it's aimed, it's aimed towards everybody. Um, it, you know, my, my talks really are focused around what I call a challenge to change. And many times in life, change comes along that involuntarily causes us challenge like COVID. You know, a change happens and causes challenge in our life. Well, I disagree with living life that way. I live life that way for too long. I believe we are supposed to proactively put challenge in our life to change ourselves. In other words, challenge ourselves to grow on a regular basis. Don't just hang out and wait for something to happen to grow. Grow actively. And that's what this is about, the success cycle. You know, a success it could be an entrepreneurial venture. It could be an athletic pursuit. It could be about growing with how you function in relationships. It could be a myriad of different things, but it is yeah. basically how you have a goal for something that you want to accomplish. And then you go about accomplish it, accomplishing it. And 
you know, my theory in life is no dream is too small or too large to be realized. And, you know, another thing that I always say too is your dream is your perfection. And all too often do we have dreams and we articulate that dream. And there's always the critic, right? There's the right. outside critic and there's inside critic. You know, that we got enough people, criti- yeah, I criticize myself enough. I don't need additional outside critics, but once we state our <laughs> dreams many times, there's so many people talking us, talking us out of what we want to believe in. And right. this, is, this is about how do I go about and do what I believe in and stand firm? And I got my process. This can help people to, to withstand that exterior onslaught and an interior onslaught of criticism that really deprives us of accomplishing our dreams. And you know, my theory is when you really have a dream that's well-seated within your heart, that is truly your dream, the only way that does not become real is if you die. Because you will not stop the pursuit of that or the pursuit of accomplishing that or the continued resilience and strengthening and you know, gaining more knowledge and readapting and you know, replanning, re-execution until it is reality. That is if it's truly your dream. If we choose to step out and quit, that's a different story. You know, quitting is different than failing. Uh, quitting is not part of the success cycle. It's a, it, you know, I guess it's a possibility, but that's not part of how you succeed. Quitting, failing is part of uh, how you succeed. You just pick yourself up, use your resilience, and carry on. And you can still continue from that point too. I mean, a great quote I saw recently was, "You're not defeated until you quit." And exactly. so, yeah, exactly. So you can always, you know, you can get knocked down, but you can always get back up. Of course. Uh, You know, that brings me to uh, thinking about how many people told you, Jason, like, you can't do that kind of crap. Like, you're blind. You can't run across the country. You you, you can't, you know, do this or that because of where your sight is. I mean, did you get a lot of that kind of stuff? I I get it on a daily basis. Yeah. Uh, You know, I (laughs) – so right now I see through like a little tube. I don't see much. And I I go out and I run without a guide because most people – most guides – don't run the amount that I run and they can't run as fast as I run. And I run a lot. Like I can't sit around waiting for somebody to get off work to go and do 20 miles. I mean, they, it doesn't have, so I got to go do it on my own. And that means that I fall, I trip, I got to memorize my routes. A lot of times I get hit by, I've been hit 30 times by cars. Every time I go out, I have close (laughs) calls and cars a lot, you know, I'll wear a blind sign, you know, a big blind bib right? and, you know, carry a cane or whatever. And, you know, I'm crossing streets. They about hit me. And I'm like, you know, hello. I'm like, you <laughs> right. see the blind? They're like, you shouldn't even be out here. Get off the street. Go back home. You know, they're Jesus. like, you're blind. Go home. You know, right. Go, go home. And, you know. Uh, yeah. Who's the blind one here? Right. Yeah. Right. And yeah, you know, I, I, I get that all the time. But what I've realized is I early on, it really affected me. But what I've what I what I listen to now is I don't listen to that. There's a lot of people are like, holy crap, you know, that dude just, you know, some dude who can't really see anything ran 18, you know, around Wash Park for 100 miles in 18 hours and change and, you know, ran into poles a bunch of times, fell down, you know, <laughs> you know silly stuff. Right. But that's what I listen to now instead of listening to the, oh, you can't. And those are, you know, if, if, if you want to piss me off, sorry for saying that, or if I'm not allowed to say that word, but it's all good. <laughs> if, you want, if you want to piss me off, use the word impossible in front of me or use the word can't. Like those are two words in my house and with my kids, those do not get used. 
And with impossible, I always use this in my talk with schools too. Like I put the word impossible up on the screen. And I'm like, that. if I do my job, you will never use that word again because it's been mispronounced. And what I do is I you know, have this, have the slide change and impossible changes into two words. I apostrophe M, I'm space possible. Nice. Impossible can also be read as I'm possible. And that's what I've told my kids. All, I was like, there is no such thing. Everything can be done. And if somebody uses the word that says you can't, or I can't do that, you know, I can't run my knees and hurt. I'm like, you're giving up before you've even tried. If you use the word can't and, and you haven't gotten out there and gone after it and failed and tried and readapt and tried and tried, you've given up before you've even been tried. That's not okay. That's unaccept. That is an unacceptable way to live life. And you know, that's the other thing too, Bill. And when I talk to you, or the other thing I love about going out to these runs is you know, you get people that are that are trying. If you sign up for a hundred mile race in our sport, you don't, nobody gets famous. Like nobody knows any, there's no, you don't get rich there. You do it for the, your personal growth. And the thing that it teaches you when you sign up for a hundred mile race, you know, you're going to hurt, you know, it's going to get bad. Right. But what you're doing is you are choosing to make yourself uncomfortable and live uncomfortably. And the thing that I realized is when you get into a position of discomfort, you are a lot more authentic, vulnerable, and growth happens sooner. When we are feeling very comfortable, we are inauthentic. We are less vulnerable. And what it takes a lot of times is it takes something in our life to strip away those layers of the onion for us to be authentic and vulnerable. That's the thing that I love about these 100-mile races or ultras or people who are like, you know, in very difficult situations and they put themselves in these positions of, of great struggle. And hence the reason why I say challenge to change, proactively put challenge in yourself to change yourself because it forces growth. And when you force growth like that, you know, if you're doing that bill, you could live like five lifetimes in the, in the time period that you would otherwise, if you just sit around and, you know, hang out and, you know, watch the Super Bowl. nothing wrong with watching the Super Bowl or the, well, I guess it's bad if you watch the Red Sox, right? It's, it's terrible. Well, actually, you, you can watch them only from the attitude of you're hoping they're going to fail. <laughs> that's okay. There you go, David. But, that yeah. one's for you, sir. Yeah, but if you're rooting for them, that's a different story. <laughs> yeah. So uh, you need to talk to uh, Colin O'Brady, though, about the word impossible. Do you know who that is? Uh, tell me. So Colin O'Brady, I mean, very inspirational person to me. He wrote a book. Uh, a couple of years ago, called The Impossible Journey, I believe it was. He was the guy who did the first self-supported solo crossing of Antarctica. He yeah. he skied across Antarctica, tra- pulling a 350-pound sled behind him, and, um, and he, he wrote the book. It was called The Impossible Journey. And then uh, a year later, he and uh, five other guys rode an open rowboat from uh, Punta Arenas, down at the bottom tip of South America to the Antarctic Peninsula through the uh, Drake Passage, the most dangerous waters in the world, in this little open rowboat. And he called that the impossible row. Um, He actually, right now, as we speak, he is on K2, which is the second tallest mountain in the world over in Pakistan. And he is attempting with a couple of Sherpas to do a winter summit 
of K2, which had never been done before until about three weeks ago when uh, 10 Sherpas actually did accomplish the first one. So he got he got beaten to the punch, so to speak. But um, I am sure that he will probably have uh, uh, some sort of documentary book, whatever, about the impossible climb next. But <laughs> but wow. he, he always has that damn impossible word in there. But, you know, again, his point is he's trying to prove to everybody you can accomplish anything that you put your heart to. Yeah. 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 Very cool guy. I, I, I hope he starts. Well, I'm sure he'll retitle his stuff. The I'm possible row. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I'll have to send him a message about that. I like yeah, it. Yeah, I'll, I'll look him up. Don't worry about it. I'm going to give him a talking to. Yeah. Very That's cool. Awesome. dude. Yeah. I, he, I love, you know, the beautiful thing about people like that is, you know, when, when you, when you talk to them, just their approach to life is a, is with positivity and possibility. Right. And any approach that you take or anything, there's always solutions. They're not bumping into the negative. You know, back when I was in the business world, you know, if you could hire a person like that, oh my gosh, you know, they're, you just turn them loose. You just turn oh, yeah. them loose because they're always going to find a way. They will find a way. Oh yeah. No, he's turned himself into a cottage industry right now, basically. I mean, he f- finds a way. I mean, he originally... So just a quick background, a dozen years ago or so, he was in a really horrible accident um, where he got a, a burning rope wrapped around his legs when he was on vacation in Thailand, and the doctors told him he would never walk normally again. And after that, though, he obviously recovered, he became this pro triathlete, and then he transitioned to being an explorer, basically. And he holds the record for the um, Explorer's Grand Slam, which is the seven summits plus the last degree of latitude to the North Pole and the South Pole. And he did all that in about eight months. Uh, he also holds the record for summiting the tallest peaks in – tallest points, I guess I should say, in all 50 states. He did it in like 37 days or something like that. So the dude is just, you know, like – and he's turned himself, like I say, into sort of a cottage industry. It's, it's really impressive. You know, my question is how does a guy get funded? Because in order to do those things, it's not even just the athletic feat – you know, to do the seven summits costs over a hundred thousand dollars. Oh yeah, and, no, he uh, raised about a half a million, I believe. I read in yeah, his book say. to do the Antarctica trek. You know, yeah. so they, and obviously had to get corporate sponsorship and whatnot. But you know, he's had some luck along the way, as he'll admit. You know, you got to make connections That's with awesome. the right people, and he's had some people underwrite some of his expeditions, which is fantastic. You know, that's what you got to do. And th- those are those. That's the additional part of the story that you know needs to be talked about. Is how do you not just the athletic feat because that's kind of like the you know, that's what grabs a headline, but it's everything that goes into that, all of the training. It's, it's not like you just do the seven summits. You know, there's a whole lot that goes into, you know, being able to survive, you know, Sherpas, getting the right people, the, you know, the right every, there's so much in logistics that go into that. When you say those things or like rowing a rowboat, that's what people gravitate towards, but all of the planning that had to go into that and the, you know, the, the safety planning and, you know, the different stuff, for the accomplishment to happen, that th- that's beautiful richness of a story. I'm gonna have to get the books. That's yeah, great. No, it's cool. And he does talk a lot about how his wife Jenna is kind of that organizer, just like you had your assistant for your uh, Trans America run. Um, she has organized all these pieces, you know, the whole thing, uh, the crossing of Antarctica, and she was on the support boat. Um, well, it was an unsupported row, but they, they were on kind of a, a research vessel alongside the, the rowboat just, you know, to observe, just in case something disastrous happened. Um, and I know she had a big part in organizing this uh, climb up K2. I mean, you definitely need to have those people around you for sure. 
Yeah. And I mean, I know the row had, you had to get permits and all sorts of other crazy stuff there. So uh, yeah, just incredible organization. So what do you have, Jason, coming up run-wise? What, what are you planning on here in 2021? I'm just hanging out. Are you? <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll see, oh, we'll see what ends up happening. No, no come no, on. You got something. Uh, you're hatching something upstairs, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll keep running. I, I don't, you know, I just, uh, I just keep running. What, ever since my, yeah, I did the run across America, I, it's kind of like, yeah, I, I don't have anything to prove. I don't need to go, you know, people like, you go climb mountains. I'm like, I, I got nothing to prove. And that wasn't for me. It was a calling from somewhere else. The work for me really is, you know, inspire connection. And uh, when I say run across America was a calling for me, I think what ended up happening was that gave me the platform to be able to get in front of people to speak. Right. And I think the speaking is a calling and doing that in an authentic and vulnerable way. I think inspire connection, creating that for other people to do that is a, you know, an additional piece of that calling with you, if you will, it's basically affecting people in changing lives through, telling those stories. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll continue to do runs or bikes or whatever. One of the things I really like to do is I like to have a project going on. So every year, like whether it's somebody who's doing their first hundred miler or first 5k or first half marathon, whatever, try to take somebody in under my wing and help them to accomplish something. I don't charge people for that or anything. And I just, you know, find somebody and, and do it. And that's, one of the greatest things ever is, you know, you, somebody runs a marathon or runs a hundred miles and you know, they're sitting there looking at that medal or that buckle, you know, two years later or three years later, and you get a note, like, this was amazing. You know, I couldn't have done it without you. I was like, you did do it without me. You can do <laughs> right. anything. You can do anything. You bet. You don't need other, you know, you, you can do anything and there's people who want to help you. Yeah. That's, well, that's the best, you know, I mean, that's, that's what I got planned. I'll always be moving, you know, run every day, lifting weights and, um, you know. Yeah. Well, I know you've helped uh, Julia Beckley, who was on our podcast a few episodes ago. She did 40 miles in the American Heroes run, and I, I know you've been a help to her. Yeah, I, I think Julia's helped me a lot more than I've helped her. Nice. And, uh, that's probably the way that those things go a lot of times, you know? Oh, absolutely. No, people don't understand sometimes that uh, when, when you're giving to them, they're actually giving you a lot more. Yeah, yeah, she 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 is a spectacular human being, With, without a doubt. So let me ask you, who inspires you? Uh, God, and uh, as far as people go, uh, my my kids really inspire me, and each one of them are so different, but each one of them has such amazing uh, different attributes, qualities. Right. Uh, <laughs> ability to be resilient and have resolve. Uh, it's just been, and, and I get to live with them and I'm related to them and I get to be their father. Like it's the greatest present every day. Um, you know, it's, it's just wonderful. Uh, you know, people who on a, on a, on a daily basis, I never know, you know, I, I always search for inspiration on a daily basis. And what really inspires me are people who, open up and are authentic and vulnerable because you don't get that often. But I really love conversations, Bill. I don't, you know, I, I try not to spend a lot of conversations in surface level conversations, cocktail conversations, if you will. Right. Um, I like to have a deep conversation about meaning, about, you know, difficulty, about, you know, tough stuff. And 
when a person is willing to go there, that's inspiring to me. It's beautiful. It's, it's, I, I'm experiencing a person truly living life. And those are really inspiring moments. You know, anybody could be inspiring. I think when I have that connection with another person, that's really what just, you know, I'm like, it's, it's real. You know, this is all we are is a bunch of stardust that's been gathered together. And somehow this miracle of life happens. We're able to think, you know, we can connect with another one another. We have feeling. One of the things that's really intrigued me lately is, you know, how does feeling or emotion originate? It's like, you know, scientists show it as being this chemical reaction and that's like something, but I'm not sure that's the entire answer, but how emotion and feeling really arises usually is, has to do with interaction with another human being somehow. Right. And that's how the powerful, you know, ups and downs happen. And, you know, when you can truly be with another person and you're both experiencing that connected, authentic and vulnerable, that's inspiring to me. And that could be any person. So I, I seek out those types of experiences as often as possible. If I do, you know, I'm, I'm really living. Yeah, no. And uh, I, I've got a bad habit of starting conversations with random people, so to speak, like that and, and getting into those deep conversations. I mean, I can think of somebody, I, I saw somebody wearing a, a Philadelphia Marathon shirt in the grocery store a couple months ago and started talking to him. And it turns out the guy is an aspiring ultra marathoner, grew up in the Bronx, a Puerto Rican guy, as a matter of fact. And, wow. um, and we just started talking and, uh, you know, we exchanged info and, uh, you know, hopefully we're, we're going to keep in touch here and everything or um, during the American Heroes run even. Um, one of the things that Boulder County Health made me do was sanitize that bathroom building every <laughs> single hour. <laughs> I mean, and you I'm know, sorry. I know, no, it was, it was like, okay, whatever, I, I'll do this. You know, I, I came out there with three huge buckets of Clorox and the mop and that's what I did every hour. I mean, hey, you know, it's my, during the middle of the night, I kept warm doing that in a way. But thank God, Twice during the race, this guy who was contracted by the city came out to do the job, so to speak. That was he, he normally does that in a park. And I started talking to this guy. The guy's name was Damien. And um, we had a great conversation. We, we, you know, we just, again, here's the guys coming out to clean the bathrooms. And we just started talking about, you know, the issues he's having, you know, connecting. He's going through a tough time with, with a divorce and with with his ex and with his kids and you know just and we, we got into a really deep conversation and he, he just I could tell that it touched him but you know it also touched me to hear how how the guy was willing to open up here and all we were both doing was cleaning bathrooms you know yeah. so uh, and, and that's cool that kind of connection it really is what it's all about just like you're saying Jason yeah and that's you know what, what you're saying right there is that's that's the goal of Inspire Connection. And if, if we can help kids at a younger age, we can foster a lot more of that as we go through life. And I think that can make this world a better place. Without a doubt. Very cool. Well, I'll tell you what, I can't wait to read your book. Uh, it sounds like it's going to be a great project. And, uh, you know, maybe uh, what I'll do here is I'll make a deal with you here about um, – speaking for you exchange for a book a bag of carrots or whatever it is i don't know if there's something Deal. out there Deal, Done. Right? Done. <laughs> cool man well hey uh where, where can people reach you jason uh i have a website jasonromero.net and uh from there i got a blog uh, i got a youtube channel i put out a lot of content sometimes i do a little monday motivation uh content uh, on my channel as well so th- those are pretty much the the regular places, social media, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, that type of stuff too. Okay. Fantastic. And uh, is there anything we've missed here? 
I just appreciate your time, Bill. I appreciate you running me down. I really appreciate you continuing on uh, David's legacy with American Heroes Run with this podcast, with, uh, you know, his positivity. And obviously, you know, there's a piece of David that you carry on, but there's a really great part of Bill that you're bringing. So I'm really glad that you're putting yourself out there and continue to do this because it, it makes a difference, man. And I just, I appreciate you. I appreciate people who do work like you do. Well, thank you so much. That really means a lot coming from you. So that that's awesome. Um, I, I was going to ask you like, Hey, are you listening to any music while you're out running? Probably not, huh? <laughs> well, actually, I found these uh, headphones called Aeroplex, and they give sound, but through bone conduction. Yeah, so yeah. Yeah, they don't plug up eardrums. So what I've done is I actually run with those. A lot of times that's easier because uh, if I'm navigating, I don't, I can have it go directly into my ear. Um, if I'm running in the mornings, a lot of times I do put on, you know, different uh, usually it's audiobooks I listen to a lot. Nice. Uh, sometimes I listen to music. I love music. Uh, trying to learn how to play the piano and play guitar a little bit better. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> I, I'm hoping to. Cool. Uh, but um, yeah, I, I listen to some different stuff along the way. But you know, when I'm on busy streets, obviously, you know, right. you know got to keep off because my my ears and my sense of smell are really my my big big senses I use to make sure I avoid stuff. That's your sight. Yeah. No, I, yeah. I totally get it. But yeah, I've heard about those headphones. I haven't tried them yet, but they, they sound cool as hell. Yeah. Yeah. They, they work out pretty good. There's some, you got to get used to them. And I'm, I, I don't know about using them for like long, long periods of time, but for shorter periods of time, they work out, they, they work out really good. And I think they're, they're good for safety. Yeah. Is it distracting though? You almost have two sources of input then. You got the what's coming through the quote headphones and then your ears, of course, are hearing normally the sounds outside. Do you get a conflict of sounds there? Yeah. We, we, I think what you find is you got to choose what you really want to listen to. Right. So it's kind of like, uh, you know, like in a selective hearing, kid, Mr. Miyagi said, you know, yeah. karate, yes. Okay. Karate, no. Okay. Karate, maybe. Not okay. <laughs> right. <laughs> and it's kind of like that. If you're going to listen to music, listen to it. If you're not going to listen to music, don't. But if you're going to like half do it, then you probably shouldn't. And that's probably true with these two, because if you have them on and you're having like other traffic, other things, and it just doesn't make sense. I mean, you could turn up the volume. So it kind of like drowns other stuff out. So uh, that kind of defeats I don't know, the purpose it's different though, for everybody, yeah. you know, right. and everybody has different sensitivities too. Sure. <laughs> All right. Very, very good. Well, hey, Jason, this has been such a privilege having you on here. I really uh, appreciate it so much. It took us a while to connect here, but uh, you know, we definitely need to go grab a lunch or something. And uh, we will, uh, I'm sure we'll talk for hours when, when we do, but it's been awesome having you here and I really appreciate your being on the podcast. So sharing your story and sharing your vision. Um, I got that right, right? Sight vision, but you've got some great vision coming up here. And uh, I, I really hope it's everything you're going to do is a success. It sounds just awesome. So thank you again. Thanks a bunch, Bill. I really appreciate it. I'm humbled that you, uh, you even had me on. Thank you, sir. Absolutely. Have a great day, buddy. Okay. Take care. Cheers. Thank you again for listening to the We Are Superman podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, please take a minute and give us a five-star rating wherever you get your podcasts. These five-star ratings help us rise higher in the podcast services search algorithms, helping more people find our show. The We Are Superman podcast is on Apple Podcasts, Pandora, iTunes, iHeart, Stitcher, Spotify, Podcast Addict, Overcast, CastBox, and more. 
And please drop me a note and let me know what you think of the We Are Superman podcast. Your feedback is important because I'd like to keep providing content that is meaningful to you on a similar kind of level that David was able to provide to you. Until next time, always be positive.